My wife, uh, Sally, and I just got back from a trip to Florida uh, where we attended a, uh, a disciple-making conference put on by Global Disciples. They are the uh, group that we're partnering with to reach an unreached people group in Myanmar. And uh, they, uh, the premise of the conference was that um, we're having this dynamic impact overseas discipling, planning churches. What about the church in the U.S.? How, how can we do a better job making disciples here and planning churches? So that was the basis of it. And um, if you have interest in disciple-making or being discipled, I'd love to talk to you after service. But the roots of global disciple disciples, even though they're non-denominational, they have Mennonite roots, which are close cousins of the Amish, so um, I didn't realize that most of the pastors there would be Mennonites, and we were actually meeting in Pinecraft, Florida, in an Amish enclave. And uh, who knew that the Amish take vacations in Florida? You know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know that. Um, but this is where Amish in Ohio and in uh, Pennsylvania and all, all these places uh, go down for, I guess, sun and fun, as far as the Amish to find that. Well, here's a shot of them at the beach in Florida. Uh, looks a little different than Maine Beach. Uh, one of the things I learned is that they're very into uh, volleyball, both Mennonites and Amish. And uh, you see them riding around town in their three-wheeled buggies. And uh, um, so I also surprised Sally in that uh, she didn't know we would be staying in an Amish hotel. And uh, you might wonder, what's an Amish? Well, it did have electricity, so that was a plus. But uh, there's a they, they had these beautiful quilts. Like that quilt right there was hand-stitched in the late 1800s. And they're, they're just gorgeous. Um, but they also have photos of you know, Amish life around, you know, barn raisings and, and all these things. So very, I mean, one of, the, one of the most unusual and I'd say one of the best hotels we've ever stayed at. Uh, also, um, uh, we ran across a, a solar-powered electric buggy <laughs> that was, uh, that was uh, invented by the Elon Musk in the Amish world, and uh, he is, he's actually st uh, putting together a startup company to, to market these um, solar-powered electric Amish buggies. So if you wanted to get in on that startup, um, you don't have to worry about the founder's tweets causing any problems or, or anything like that. But I think there's an appeal to some of us about the Amish lifestyle at times when we're kind of overwhelmed in this kind of electronic world that we live in, the idea of becoming unplugged completely. I mean, that's the life they're living. And uh, just to see their... Um, their simplicity and their humility is something uh, that we can all admire. Well, this morning in Luke 14, we're going to be looking at the perils of pride contrasted with the beauty of humility. And uh, uh, I think we can de define pride as that kind of self-sufficient place in us where we say, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with who I am. 
uh, what I've achieved, all the things that I have, and what I've done in life. And, you know, I've done it. I don't really need God. Um, I got this. I'm the, I want to be the captain of my own, of my own ship. And that's that prideful attitude that can still kind of rise up in us at times, that I can do it. Um, let's open to Luke 14.1, and I will pray as we get started. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. Grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we read your word. Pray that your words would come alive to us, that we would be transformed by the living word. In Jesus' name, amen. One Sabbath, when he went out to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now, if you invited Jesus over to your house for dinner, you never quite knew what might happen. I mean, he was not always the most discreet dinner guest. And sometimes he would confront people in a way that made them feel uncomfortable. Sometimes he would do things that might upset their buggy. Uh, he went to have dinner at the home of this ruler of the Pharisees, and there were the other Pharisees, and it says even some lawyers were there. And uh, they were watching Jesus very carefully to see what he would do. Now, the Pharisees were these self-righteous uh, uh, people who had a, this pious exterior of religiosity. Uh, they were showing everybody just how godly they were uh, by their actions. And they, this sick man just happens to be there on a Sabbath day. Well, what do you think? Do you think this might have been a setup? It seems as if they may have planted this man to see if Jesus would violate their rules against healing on the Sabbath. They were building a case against Jesus. And they even had lawyers present who might someday bring the charges against him. It looks like they were out to get him. Now, immediately Jesus sees this suffering man uh, and uh, mentions this word dropsy. It's not something we use much today, but it uh, refers to the modern condition of edema, which is a buildup of fluid usually around the heart and lungs caused by a weak heart or other organs. And it's a serious condition that could lead to death. Jesus saw this man in a desperate condition and he asked a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He knew that the law of Moses never forbade healing on the Sabbath. It prohibited doing any regular work on the Sabbath. And it was designed for man's benefit, for his refreshing, renewal, for uh, uh, rest and to give him joy. But the Jewish leaders had added 39 other regulations to the Sabbath that were not in the law of Moses. So if they answer Jesus' question and they say, yes, healing is permitted, then they violate their own regulations. But if they said, 
healing is not permitted, then they come across as uncaring. So what do they do? They remain silent. It's amazing how often Jesus silenced his critics. They didn't know what to say. So with compassion, Jesus miraculously, instantly heals uh, this man. And uh, medical doctors today cannot heal someone instantly who is suffering from edema. But Jesus is a supernatural God. He can override the external appearance of things. He can defy the medical experts. And the best news is that he is alive and he's still doing that today. Verse 5, he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well will not immediately pull him out? Well, Jesus gives them a zinger because, of course, if their child or one of their animals fell into a well on the Sabbath, they would move heaven and earth to pull him out. They cared more about their animals than they did about this man. So Jesus exposes their lack of love and compassion. He revealed their hypocrisy and pride. While this man had a physical swelling in the body, they were swollen with spiritual pride. Their hard hearts were causing a potentially fatal spiritual condition. They were so locked into their traditions, they felt no joy when Jesus healed this poor man. Now, hypocrisy is one of those charges you hear leveled against Christians. I think that you hear us being labeled as judgmental or hypocrites by the, you know, the larger society. And it has that kind of sting attached to it. And because I've served as an elder and a pastor, I, I know that I'm in that group of people that Jesus was directing his attention to. So if I try to teach other men about purity and I'm gazing too long at a lustful image on the TV or on the internet, I'm being a hypocrite. And if I act with impure motives toward others, the same thing. And I don't want that charge hanging around my neck. So I battle against my sin nature all the time. What are some characteristics of pride and hypocrisy as displayed by these leaders? Well, first of all, they studied their Bible for ammunition against others, but didn't apply it to themselves. They knew their Bibles. They could quote scripture and verse. They saw themselves as guarding the faith, waiting to catch somebody else in error. I think there's a lot of pastors uh, out there who know this kind of person who sits in the pews. And while they watched Jesus carefully, they failed to examine their own hearts carefully. They, for, they focused more on external conformity than inward, inwardly getting right with God. But Jesus always gets down to that heart level. And he's always challenging us about our thought lives and about being free from carrying anger with us and about loving those people who are difficult or 
mistreating us, about uh, forgiving those who have wronged us. I have to be careful about hypocrisy in my own life. Sin is so highly delusional, and I can make these little rationalizations, and those rationalizations lead to these little compromises. And the problem is those little compromises add up to bigger compromises until at some point I find out I'm in this leaky boat and that boat is going down unless I get right with God. Let's read verse 7 and following in our text. Now he told them a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. They lived in in a shame and honor-based society. And so the nearer you sat to the host, the more honor you had. It was a It was a pecking order at the dinner table that reflected your social standing. And the Pharisees loved these places of honor uh, at banquets, and they loved to be called by their titles when they're out in public. Hello, Rabbi. Hello, teacher. And uh, some commentators even believe that at the Last Supper, uh, Judas, Judas may have seated himself at the place of honor at the Last Supper. So it appears at this dinner they were kind of scrambling around, jockeying to find their place at the table. And Jesus is just kind of sitting back watching this. And he gave a teaching that echoes Proverbs 4, or Proverbs 25, verse 6. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Well, who was the real king at this dinner party? It was the one who was clothed in the robes of a servant. The king of the universe, right there in their midst. And he was waiting to be told by the host where to sit. Now, they, while they were filled with spiritual dropsy, swollen with pride, the rightful and true king walked in humility among them. Now, how could a king have such an attitude? What kind of king, after all, would be born in the stable? What kind of a king uh, ever learned to work with his hands in a carpenter's shop? What kind of king never actually lived in a palace or even owned his own house? Let's read Philippians 2.5 and following. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you ever bowed the knee to Jesus and confessed him as your Lord and Savior? That this, that, that action is the beginning of the path to humility. It was Pastor Chuck Smith who taught, when you grow up as a Christian, you will be a servant. When you grow up as a Christian, you will be a servant. And a servant must walk in humility as our Lord did. Well, what does it mean to walk in humility? Does it mean that you walk in a sort of deflated, downcast way? Uh, C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And there is this spectrum between pride and you might even say uh, excessive pride and then humility on the other hand. And... Um, so there is this sense that on, on the one extreme you could be uh, too hard on yourself, beating yourself up, and then on the other side becoming conceited. And the, the point of humility is having an accurate view of your identity as God sees you. Um, we should have, uh, you should know that if you are a child of God and you're following Jesus, that you are lavishly loved by God and that he loves you unconditionally. So that means that he's going to love you on your best day as much as he loves you on your worst day, as Pastor Jay would say. So we should have a healthy self-esteem because we have been esteemed by God. We love him because he first loved us and his love never gives up. One of the characteristics of humility is realizing that everything we have is a gift from God. And Paul said in Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? What do you have that you have not received? It's all a gift. Humility recognizes that whatever intelligence you are given at birth, whatever gifts and talents, Whatever looks, whatever possessions, whatever power or influence you think you might have, it's all a gift from above. When you walk in humility and meekness, in serving others sacrificially, God promises to lift you up in due time. 
And it's all reversed from the way the world works. And in the world, you see people striving, fighting, backbiting to get to the top of the heap. It's been said that Christianity, on the other hand, is downwardly mobile. Christianity is downwardly mobile. Try to wrap your head around the implications of that. That's something we don't like to think about, actually. But in thinking about that, I, I think about the life of Henry Nouwen, the great um, writer. His books have sold seven million copies. He was a pastor. Uh, he was a professor at Notre Dame. And uh, he gave up his lofty status in the academic community among his peers to go and live and minister to the mentally disabled the last 10 years of his life. Now here's a man with great intellect ministering to those who could not probably give a lot back to, in return in terms of intellect, and yet I know he received a great blessing in that sacrifice ministering to people who are largely forgotten, put, set aside in our society. Christianity is downwardly mobile. I also think about Robertson McKilkin, who headed Columbia International University. He resigned from the presidency of the university so he could be a full-time caregiver to his wife Muriel because of her advancing Alzheimer's disease. Now, what kind of a man would give up his career at its height to become a full-time caregiver to his wife? There's a beauty that shines through a life that's walked in humility, and it's shown through the lives of those two individuals. Humility is so contrary to human nature that we cannot perform it. You can't really fake it. Each of us, and in fact, false humility is a, another facet of spiritual pride. So each of us, you know, as we walk through life, we're going to reach a point when we are probably going to be humbled by God. And if you live long enough, you're going to face some disappointments, setbacks, life isn't going to turn out the way you thought it was. And what are you going to cling to when those times come? Well, this is the way of the cross. This is becoming like our Lord as he became broken bread and poured out wine for us. And in following in his footsteps, we become broken bread and poured out wine. First Peter 5 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all anxiety upon him because he cares for you. It was shocking to me as a young Christian to discover that pride is a sin that God hates the most. I mean, in my 20s, my self-esteem was off the charts. Uh, my 
I was so prideful, so self-centered and self-focused. But pride is the fountainhead of all other sins. And people don't understand how dangerous it can be. And it leads to a kind of a coldness in the way you, uh, you love people, an indifference toward the needs of others and their feelings and their weaknesses. It's a source of becoming critical and judgmental toward others. Uh, it's a source of anger, touchiness, irritation. Unforgiveness and bitterness come from a spirit of pride. Now, humility, on the other hand, can be very powerful. And one of the ways I think we can grow in humility is by learning to listen. listen listening to others and listening to God. Have you ever been around people who only talk about themselves? And when they are talking about themselves, they're sort of talking at you instead of with you? It can be kind of annoying. And um, I came to this realization, though, that I can do the same thing in my prayer time with God. I spent a lot of years talking at God. And a few years ago, I decided to create a space within my prayer time for listening. So at the end of my prayer time, I will silently pray, Lord, if you have a word for me this day, I'm listening for your voice. I've never heard an audible voice, but you know there are these little impressions that come through. Often it's like a little phrase, like, love your wife, okay? <laughs> Cherish your wife. Um, but I think, uh, I think just listening is one of the first steps that we can take in the path of humility. When our son Sam came back from his sabbatical in Mozambique and then ministering in the slums of Brazil, he mentioned one of Heidi Baker's teachings that kind of hit me. And here's this, you know, woman who's a giant uh, woman of God, and she and her husband planting numerous churches and feeding hundreds, thousands of orphans, and um, um, creating medical clinics and schools and and uh, all these things. And she says that every day when she gets up, her prayer is that God would crucify her flesh. Now. Here's a woman who's a giant of God asking God to crucify her flesh, okay? So I'm thinking to myself, if she needs to pray for that, how much more do I need that? that? And I've come to this realization that battling, uh, ba this battle is a lifelong struggle to put to death uh, this, this uh, part of ourselves, this pride, this this uh, ugly side of the old nature that doesn't die easily. And it, it's going to be a long-term project. Thank you, God, for your patience. Well, who's the most humble person who ever walked on the face of the earth? I think you could make a, a pretty good case that that was Jesus Christ. And therefore, it was the ultimate injustice 
that he was accused of, of, of arrogance, and he was crucified because of that. They said because he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Well, I'm going to ask you to stand now. I'm going to read this last verse as a benediction. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. I'm going to ask the ministry team to come forward now. And as I said before, the path of humility begins with bowing the knee to Jesus and confessing him as your Savior and Lord. And um, if you have bad knees, you can also, that really means bow, bow in your heart, in that inmost part of you, to Jesus. If you've never taken that step, we'd like to invite you to come forward and receive Jesus. If you've never decided you want to follow him, and it, it means coming to a kind of a realization of a few important things. Number one, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? It means that what you earn as you sin over time is this kind of deadness that creeps into your soul. It's a, a, you're getting farther and farther away from God until finally when you die, there is eternal separation from God. And there's only one person who bridged the gap between a holy God and man carrying the burden of all these sins, and that was Jesus Christ. And by going to the cross, he paid the price for your sins so that you can enjoy eternal life with him. So if you've never taken that step to receive him and follow him, you could do that this morning, and I want to invite you to come forward. One of these on our ministry team will pray with you and uh, this will be the start of that path of humility. Let me pray now. Lord, uh, I confess there were many times in my life that I was a rebel running away from you. And Lord, if there's anyone like that here who's been running from God, I invite you now to make a U-turn and move toward God and confess that you are a sinner, that you need God, and that uh, you believe that he died and rose again, and right now, you can invite him to come in and make you into the kind of person that he wants you to be. In Jesus' name, amen.